How many of you would like the secret of a better life as we enter into 2024? Anyone? Yeah, I see, I see some heads nodding. Many people today are thinking about what resolutions they can make so that life in 2024 will be better than life in 2023. And the last time we were in Ecclesiastes, Solomon had asked a question which we kind of left hanging in Ecclesiastes 6.12. For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime? He's now going to show the place that wisdom has as he answers that question. Uh, as he already said, wisdom shouldn't be an end of itself, but it surely can help answer some of life's most difficult questions and guide us in our journey in this world. Many consider chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes a transition, whereas Solomon had been addressing things that do not lead to a better life, he's now going to begin to show what is better. And so the words wisdom and wise are repeated in chapter 7 and chapter 8, as you'll see. And as Solomon introduces God's wisdom into the picture, these words, wisdom and wise, are used almost 35 times in the second half of Ecclesiastes as Solomon tries to drive home his point. Because of this transition between chapters, the first six um, chapters and the second six, the book now is going to take on more of a typical style that wisdom literature usually takes on. Short, choppy, proverbial sayings rather than narrative. These are principles for handling life under the sun. The SV Study Bible says this, the Proverbs that follow are clustered around the thematic words, good or better, and they attempt to provide at least a partial answer to this question, what is good for man in his lifetime? Another commentator, Jameson Fawcett and Brown, wrote this, since man's toils are vain, what is the chief good? The answer is contained in the rest of the book. According to the Bible Knowledge Commentary, this section includes many imperatives. Imperatives are um, commands. It's the, the form of, of a command. And recommendations and commendations needed for a better life. There's much practical advice on how we live, which we so desperately need. Within our verses today, we see that God sovereignly brings both prosperity and adversity and either of those could have good or bad effects or ramifications depending on how we respond or react to them. Well, the better life is one that responds well to both adversity and prosperity. The word translated better is used more often in this chapter, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, than any other chapter in the Old Testament, 14 times by my count. Now, it's not easy really to count because it's that Hebrew word that's behind some of these words. There are several different English words translated in the New American Standard, but all are from the same root word, which can mean this word better, which can mean beautiful or pleasant or sweet. So let's listen as Solomon lays out the place of wisdom for the better life. He's going to give us practical wisdom for how to live a better life life. So as you can probably imagine, the title of the message is just simply a better life. A better life. 
We've already read the text and we've already prayed, so we'll just go ahead and jump right in here. In verses 1 through 6, we see that the better life doesn't ignore reality. The better life doesn't ignore reality. In the beginning of verse 1, we see that there's a prioritizing of a long-term reputation over short-term gratification. He says this, a good name is better. The word name can mean authority or character. It can have the idea of reputation. It's what people think of when they hear the label or your name. This likely goes further than here what he's talking about, a good name is better, likely goes further than reputation in man's eyes, but more importantly, what we are in the sight of God, how God sees us. Solomon says a good name is better than a good ointment, or as one translation puts it, a a precious ointment. Now, good name and ointment, these two words, it's actually a literary device because both of these Hebrew words sound very similar. They have different meanings. It's It's almost a play on words here. Now, this word for ointment, the NIV has fine perfume. Have you ever been in an elevator or in close quarters with someone who has a good scent like this. Not not like we go around sniffing people or anything like that, but sometimes the scent is captivating and we can't avoid it, right? Well, that olfactory sense of pleasure is temporary, right? You leave the elevator and now you no longer uh, sense that. You never no longer have that pleasurable scent. Well, in this comparison between good ointment and a good name, the good ointment is not valueless, He's not making a comparison between one thing that has no value and one thing that has great value. Quite the contrary, the ointment is valuable. It was a costly luxury in Israel at this time, this ointment that he's referring to. This principle is laid out in other places in Scripture. In Proverbs 22, verse 1, for example, it says this, A good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold importance of a good name. It's greater than wealth. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 and 7, it says this. Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. Mary used her precious ointment to honor the Lord do you happen to remember what happened next? There were people who were, who were close by that questioned her, um, criticized her for what she was doing. Probably Judas was part of the group that was criticizing her. Remember Jesus' response to that? In Mark chapter 14, verses 18, 8 and 9, it says this. Jesus, speaking of Mary, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. And we know that's true because we have the record of it. And so she used something that was valuable, a temporary treasure, but her good reputation, because she used it well, persists to this day. On the other hand, you have somebody like Judas, whose name, actually, uh, Judas comes from the the same Hebrew word as Judah, which is one of the tribes of Israel. It means praise. 
Um, you might remember in Genesis when uh, Rebecca and, and um, sorry, Ra Rachel and Leah were having children, it said often what the name meant. And when Leah had Judah, she said, I, now I will praise. Something along those lines. His name means praise. And so Judas was born with a good name, but he died having it spoiled it to the point where it was a stench. A good ointment only affects those around and for a short time. But a good name can have longer and broader impact both here and on into eternity. A good name or a good character or good testimony, we might say, influences and changes lives. Ointment doesn't have that long-term effect. When we get to the end of verse 1, we see that there is a prioritizing of living for eternal impact. And it goes hand in hand with where we just were. Because then he says something that might seem a little bit um, disjointed at first. He says, the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. The day that one was delivered. You might remember in Ecclesiastes 4.2... Solomon said this, so I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. So imagine uh, Solomon or somebody else going around in the cemetery and, and going to different gravestones and saying, hey, congratulations, you made it, or something like that. He congratulated the dead who are already dead. As I said, these, these sayings may seem disjointed, but when we combine them together, we find that a good name makes the day of one's death a better experience at the day of one's birth when somebody receives their name it's not as good a day as when their name is an in an obituary for one who has lived a life well think about why that might be well one the day of one's birth is when we receive the sinful flesh of this world but on the day of our death a believer is freed from it okay? we don't sin no longer uh, enslaves us at the day of our death. Warren Wearsby wrote this, the life lived between those two events, the day of one's birth, the day of one's death, will determine whether that name leaves behind a lovely fragrance or a foul stench. The day of one's death has value because it causes family and loved ones often and acquaintance and friends to consider death. One can have a very good beginning be born into a, a family with many advantages and yet bring reproach to his name. It's better to have a good name at the end of life. What a comfort it is for those when we attend the funeral of a godly saint who has this kind of reputation at the end of their life. So there's a prioritizing of living for the eternal now in verse 2, there's a, a prioritizing of living soberly. Living soberly. Solomon often encourages us to reflect on the brevity of life and live accordingly. So he says it's better to go to a house of mourning. This word means lamentation. than go to a house of feasting or, or banqueting. As Matthew Henry points out, neither of these are wrong. Um, Jesus went to a wedding at Cana. 
in John chapter 2. He also went to Lazarus' grave in John chapter 11. So neither of them are inherently wrong, but he's saying one is better than the other. Why? Well, he gives us an answer, because that is the end of every man. Um, NIV uses the word destiny. It's, it's every man's destiny. Every one of us has a date with death. Unless the Lord returns. Every one of us has a date with death. Uh, turn back to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We saw a similar sentiment not too long ago. Ecclesiastes 2, verses 14 through 16. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 14. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. <coughs> and, and yet I know that one fate befalls them both. Who are them? Who are they both? The wise man and the fool. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. So Solomon here is personalizing it. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten. And how the wise man and the fool all alike die. So every one of us has a date with death. And that's because, as Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin, which is what all of us have earned, is death. The end of all men is to die. And then he says the living takes it to heart. Here, not referring to the physical heart, but the immaterial part of who we are. It's the real us. The moral center of who we are, which informs what we do and how we make decisions. Thinking soberly about life rather than living for the next pleasure is part of the better life. In Psalm 90, verse 12, Moses, who wrote this psalm, said this, so teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Moses encourages this numbering of our days so that we might focus on what's truly important, our relationship with God. In verse 3, we see prioritizing true joy. There's another statement here that Solomon makes. Sorrow is better than laughter. Sorrow here is actually the same word translated anger later in this passage. It, it has to do with vexation or provocation. And this word laughter can mean a mocking or a derisive laughter, but it can also just simply mean merriment, which I believe is probably what it is here. He's talked about similar things before. Remember Solomon cycles through these things and brings things up again and again. In Ecclesiastes 2.2 he had said this I said of laughter it is madness and of pleasure what does it accomplish? So how and why is sorrow better than laughter? Well I can give you one reason from scripture. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this 
For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So it tells me that godly sorrow brings repentance, which leads to salvation, not just at conversion, but all throughout life. And it's not a repentance with regret. It's a a joyful repentance. That's a characteristic of the better life. That's what it means to continually go back to the cross. Repentance is just a change of mind and a change of direction. We're going this way, following our own way, and now we're again returning to the cross and finding forgiveness again. Not that we're being converted over and over again, but that repentance happens all throughout life because we sin all throughout life. So uh, that's why we know a couple that's uh, on the radio. They, They say what they say to themselves in their marriage is, I'll race you at the cross. I'll race you to the cross. I'll race you to the cross in any of those conflicts within their marriage. That's what it means to live a life of joyful repentance. But he goes on to say, for when a face is sad, when when your countenance is sorrowful, yet a heart may be happy or glad. The result of a life lived soberly and in reality is better. In this situation, the sadness is a surface sadness, but there is true joy in the heart. By the way, that's much better than somebody who just kind of plasters on a smile on their face, but inside they are in joyless despair. Sorrow is better than laughter. In verse 4, he prioritizes grief over pleasure. It says, the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning. The word mind here, mind, is also the word for heart used in uh, verse 3, and it means just simply who we are on the inside. Well, who we are in the inside of the wise, the wise person, the skillful or cunning person, is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. The Bible Knowledge Commentary rightly stated, present-day society which emphasizes self-centered hedonism desperately needs to heed this reminder. In verses 5 and 6 of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, we see a prioritizing of difficult truths over seductive falsehoods. Prioritizing Difficult truth over seductive falsehoods. Where do you get that? Well, it says, better to listen to the rebuke of the wise man. Listen here is the word shema. Uh, That's a very important word to the Hebrew, to the Jew. It was part of what they would call the shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he is one. It requires hearing with intelligence. This isn't a a listening that just goes in one ear and out the other, right? It's It's a hearing with intelligence. It's better to hear with intelligence, to take in the rebuke, reproof. This word can mean admonishment. It really has to do with, admonishment has to do with when we're not thinking right, 
somebody comes along and challenges so that we'll start to think right. We all need that. So it's better to listen to the rebuke of the wise man than to listen to the song of fools. The word song here can mean music, um, but it can also mean singing. It's the singing of fools, same word as, as above, this word fool. About this, one of the commentators, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown said this, Godly reproof offends the flesh, but benefits the spirit. Right? We, don't, we don't like this. Right? We don't necessarily go out of our way to be reproved by others. He says, Godly reproof offends the flesh, but it benefits the spirit. Warren Wearsby says this, If we allow it, a wise person rebuke will accomplish far more in our lives than will the flattery of fools. Let me say that again. This is a, a very important thing for us to consider today. If we allow it, a wise person's rebuke will accomplish far more in our lives than will the flattery of fools. And back that up pretty easily in scripture. In Psalm 141, verse 5, it says this, Let the righteous smite me in kindness and reprove me. It is oil upon the head. Do not let my head refuse it. I see how the, the psalmist there is, is wrestling through this. He's like, he's like, I want to have somebody smite me in kindness and reprove me. Don't let my head refuse it. Right? He's, he's struggling with the fact that he knows that his tendency is, I don't want that. I know I need it. But don't let my head refuse it. Proverbs 25.12 says this, Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Part of the reason that it's to be valued is that the rebuke is part of the better life because it, it gives life. It gives life. Proverbs 6.23 says this, For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is light. And reproofs for discipline are the way of life. Reproofs for discipline are the way of life. This is the way of life in God's definition of it. Part of that reason why is we like to create for ourselves an alternate reality. And we need wise people around us to challenge our false narrative about ourselves and about things around us. By the way, that's also why Proverbs, in several places, talks about the wisdom in the multitude of counsel. In the multitude of counsel. Do you frequently find yourself making decisions all on your own, or do you get counsel from others? Proverbs says there's wisdom in the multitude of counsel. The one who is accepting of reproofs from others is one that leads to honor. Proverbs 13 verse 18 says this, Poverty and shame will come to him who neglects discipline, but he who regards reproof will be honored. Will be honored. One more along this line. Proverbs 15, 31 and 32. He whose ear listens to the life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. 
He who neglects discipline despises himself. But he who listens to reproof acquires understanding. Somebody who's not teachable, who's stiff and never wants input from anyone else. Proverbs says you despise yourself. You despise yourself. Then he goes on to say in Ecclesiastes 7, for the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot. Now, again, the word pot and sound here have the same Hebrew root word. So this is another play on words, just like earlier ointment and name. So is the laughter of the fool. In some instances, the laughter of a fool is actually destructive. In others, it's just like the meaningless roar of a fire, right? It makes a lot of noise for a period of time. Soon it's scattered as ashes all over the ground. And he says it's futility, transitory, it's short-lived, it's meaningless. The laughter of a fool. It doesn't have lasting impact. And so for us, that's a, a challenge, not to live life as if it's one big party, and miss the weightier things of this life in God's design. It's not that we're not allowed to have days of, of banqueting and, and fun and entertainment. But don't miss the weightier things of life because everything is a big party. Throughout this whole section, it seems that Solomon is emphasizing the advantages of adversity that wouldn't come when life is filled with pleasure only. We'll see he continues that throughout the remainder of our passage. Um, but in particular, in verses 7 through 10, we see that the better life avoids certain responses and attitudes. So he's going to address certain responses and attitudes in these verses. And the first part, the first one here in verse 7, is that life circumstances can corrupt people. Corrupt says oppression makes a wise man mad this word oppression just means unjust gain or extortion we might think blackmail something like that it makes a wise man mad this word has the idea not of anger but of raving like a lunatic when difficulties and injustice persist the temptation is even for the wise to act out wrongly and we must this word corrupts can mean to cause to wander away or to cause to stray, or it can mean to destroy. At times, people get themselves in situations where bribery seems to be expedient, and uh, even our missionaries often are put in a place where, under a corrupt regime, that expediency would actually make it better, more convenient to bribe, although they don't do it because it goes against their convictions. But bribery sometimes is seen as an expedient way to get things done, but beware of shortcuts in this life. The phrase that people seem to use today is this phrase, life hacks. These are life hacks, things that are shortcuts that help you get somewhere in life. Shortcuts can sometimes become very expensive detours. Listen to what the law says, the law of Moses about this. In Exodus 23, verse 8, you shall not take a bribe. 
for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of the just. In Deuteronomy 16.19, a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. See the negative impact of bribes, how it leads to um, destruction and the perversion of a wise person, a righteous man. So we see in verse 7 that um, there are things in this world, situations that can cause uh, real damage like oppression and bribes. Now secondly, in verse 8, about this wrong reactions and, and wrong responses in life, we see in verse 8 that this world requires patience. This world requires patience. Starts out by saying the end of the matter is be better than its beginning end of a thing is better than the beginning, the first part of it. Many times, how we begin will affect how we end. But at the beginning of things, we have certain expectations. I think about it in the beginning of a year, right? We have certain expectations at the beginning of all that, um, but all that is now gone and the whole truth is clear at the end. So think about the expectations we might have had going into 2023 and now we're at the end of the matter and now we see all of it more clearly because we've gone through that year and as Chuck Swindoll says once we reach the end we know the whole story and that is better than the beginning of a matter where desires lack substance desires lack substance Uh, it's like a dream that doesn't go fulfilled well the wise will wait and see what the end of the matter is. And they'll understand that even the evil works of oppressors, as he was just talking about, they may stand in this world, but every one of them will be made right in the end when Jesus the just makes all things right. God's overruling providence will prove to be perfect. And nobody will ever be able to charge him in the end of doing anything unrighteous. Everything he's done will prove to be righteous. The wonder will will fall on our faces before the Lamb, this wise Savior. So the end of the matter is better than its beginning. Now probably more clearly in the idea of patience is, he says patience in spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Now if I was looking at this, I would think that he would put patience up against impatience. But instead, he says, haughtiness of spirit. This word patience is the word macrothumos. It literally is long-suffering. Long-suffering. Patience in spirit. Again, this is the word for heart. It's patience of heart, our mind, our, our inner selves. Think about it as inner peace. Is better than haughtiness. This word haughtiness means high or lofty, and obviously it has to do with pride. Proverbs 14.29 says this, He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. He who is quick-tempered exalts folly. In Proverbs 16.32 it says this, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, 
and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. Patience, being slow to anger, is highly prized. In fact, patience is part of the composite um, virtues that make up the fruit of the spirit in Galatians chapter 5. When God brings some difficulty or adversity into our lives, it's not always easy to be patient, is it? It's not always easy to be patient. We want a way of escape out of the trial. But God's sovereign will may be that we sit in it for a season. And so why does he use haughtiness as opposed to patience? Well, it's because of this. A humble submission to the plans of God is needed for patience. So Solomon uses pride as its opposite. Taking things into our own hands. It's the opposite of having patience, waiting on the Lord. And then in verse 9, avoiding anger is better. Avoiding anger is better. He says, do not be eager in your heart to be anger, angry. This word eager, the NIV translates it, quickly provoked. Do not be quickly provoked, hasty or speedy to act out in wrath. Let not anger be your first response. Uh, in the, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, patient has the word thumos in it, which is translated anger. So this idea of patience can mean slow to anger. Well, this is the opposite. This is somebody who's fast to anger. Proverbs 14, 17 says, A quick-tempered man acts foolishly. A quick-tempered man acts foolishly. Proverbs 16, 32, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. And in James 1, 19, James gives counsel to the people he's writing to. Everyone must be quick to hear slow to speak, and slow to anger. These are good verses to sit on if you find yourself struggling in this area where you get angry quickly. We need to see from God's word what God says about these things and be slow to anger with his help. And he goes on to say, anger resides in the bosom of fools. It, it rests in the bosom, or we might think lap, in the lap of fools. It settles down in the midst of fools. It abides within this anger. And so anger may come to the bosom of a wise man, but it only rests or finds a home in the bosom of fools. The wise man and woman would recognize anger for what it is and confess and forsake God helping us to forsake. We don't give ourselves over to anger. But in the bosom of a fool, anger is clutched. And it's not easily let go. It settles then into other things. Resentment, hostility, revenge, yes, even murder. That's the result of somebody who clutches and hangs on to anger and, and treasures it in their heart. Not that it would always lead to that extreme, 
but surely the possibility is there and it's a fool who would do that, who would play around with anger. Those of us who um, are wise, even when we get angry, I would imagine most of us do from time to time, we would see that as a reason for confession, forsaking repentance, turning to God, asking his help. Finally, in verse 10, in these wrong reactions, avoid discontent. Avoid discontentment. Where is discontentment in this? Well, Solomon says this. Don't say, why is it that the former days were better than these? He says it's not a wise question to ask. This is discontentment with how things are today. When we focus too much on the future or stay in the regret of the past, the present passes us by and is gone. Think about the when the foundation of the temple was laid in Ezra's day. Do you remember the reaction of the old men and, and the young men? The old men wept. They wept because they longed for what they had in the past, while the young men sang. Our discontent can be veiled with so many good-sounding words and sentiments. But it's a form of complaining about our current situation when we say things like, why is it that the former days were better than these? And to be honest, this is an ouchie for me. I'm sure I have bemoaned this world and asked why we couldn't go back to some of the old ways and simpler times. Solomon says, don't do it. He says, you aren't asking a wise question when you do that. It's easy for us to lose touch with reality and to see some season of life in the past without seeing its challenges. One commentator said, longing for the good old days can be described as a combination of a bad memory and a good imagination. A bad memory and a good imagination because there are challenges in every season of life. And there are lessons to be learned throughout our time here on this planet. Matthew Henry wrote this. It's folly to complain of the badness of our own times when we have more reason to complain of the badness of our own hearts. If if men's hearts were better, the times would mend. Wanting to live in some different time whether in the past or even some time before our lifetime, ultimately it comes down to a complaint against God who is the one who's decided when and where each one of us would live. So as we move on from here and think about these uh, different responses to life, the Bible Knowledge Commentary says this, all of these actions and attitudes are essentially contrary to the submissive attitude Solomon later implied in view of God's sovereignty. That's where he's about to go next. Um, But before we get to that, because that'll be verses 13 and 14, our closing verses. Before that, in verses 11 and 12, we see that the better life profits from wisdom. The better life profits from wisdom. In verse 11, wisdom is an advantage to those who live under the sun. While wisdom, Solomon has already made the case, it's not going to bring ultimate satisfaction He does have much to say in commendation for it 
in these verses. It's what helps to live for what we should be living for. Where we do get our satisfaction, Jesus. So he says, wisdom along with an inheritance is good. The word inheritance just means estate or possessions. It's with wisdom along with it is good or desirable. And he says it's an advantage to those who see the sun, those of us who are living in this world. It's a profit and it leads to something better. So you see there's a combination here. There's two things that, that um, are needed here. The wisdom along with the inheritance is required to make good use of what one has been left. Right, so he doesn't say it this way, but an a a, a inheritance without wisdom probably won't have a lot of value. Why? Because somebody will just squander it. They won't make good use of it. And we see that. We see a, a prodigal squander his inheritance in Luke chapter 15. But this one that Solomon's talking about is one who will use it wisely. You know, everything that we have comes with a stewardship. And we must seek to use God's gifts wisely. We must seek to use God's gifts wisely. In verse number 12 of Ecclesiastes 7, we see that wisdom has a preserving power. Wisdom has a preserving power. It's a protection, a defense. The NIV has shelter. It's a shelter. Sometime later this winter, we'll get to Ecclesiastes 9, 8, 18, which says this. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Wisdom is a protection. And then he says, just as money, and the word money here is literally the word silver, just as money is a protection. Um, I used to work for a bank. And the CEO, which if I said his name, some of you probably would recognize his name. He used to talk about a fortress balance sheet. A balance sheet is just the, the things, the, the assets and liabilities that a company has. Well, this for, fortress balance sheet that he was referring to would have different assets in different places. And that would then be a fortress balance sheet that he's talking about. It would guard against unexpected events. Right? So if the, the U.S. stock market fell, for example, there would be other assets that would protect against that, just as an example. And we talk about safety nets. Even as a church, we have a, a safety net, which God has provided as a protection for us. And we know from Scripture that wisdom can also be like a wall of protection for us. So, so he says, in some ways, both wisdom and money will shield us from some of the difficulties that come in this life. But wealth, on the, other, on the one hand, is only a protection in this life. Wisdom will bring eternal rewards and enduring value. He says, the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. The word knowledge can just mean awareness. It's a, there's an awareness, an advantage of having the awareness that wisdom preserves. It keeps alive the possessors, the owners, those who have it. Now, does that mean that 
everyone who dies young was unwise? No, this is a principle that's being laid out. doesn't always hold true, but it's a general principle that somebody who's wise and doesn't take unnecessary risks is going to have a longer life. It's, it, their life is going to be preserved, generally speaking. And he says it leads to a life of fulfillment. Proverbs 8, verses 10 and 11 says this, Take my instruction and not silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all desirable things cannot compare with her. The high price, price of wisdom, the value that we should put on it. In Proverbs 3.18, she, being wisdom, is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. And happy are all who hold her fast. Unlike the fool who holds anger fast in the bosom, this is one who's holding fast to wisdom. That's a happy, that's a blessed life. Proverbs 8.35, For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. And so all things being equal, generally speaking, living a life of wisdom will lead to a longer life than one who takes foolish risks. And more importantly, wisdom will lead to a better eternity. It'll lead to a better eternity. Finally this morning, in verses 13 and 14, we see that the better life trusts God in all circumstances. The better life trusts God in all circumstances. In verse 13, we see that wisdom doesn't have all the answers. I like the way the Bible knowledge commentary describes God's providence. He says it's immutable, meaning it can't be changed, and it's inscrutable meaning we can't fully understand it. Both of those things show that we're finite and he's infinite. But he says, Solomon in, in Ecclesiastes 7, he says, consider the work of God. This word consider means to see or to gaze at. Look closely. We might think of it as inspect the work of God, God's work, his activity, his deeds. Now, this is the first time that God is brought into the picture in this chapter. Consider the work of God. Who is able to straighten what he has bent? Who can set it in order? Who has the power or might to make it straight? In, in some ways, we might ask the question, who's going to straighten God out? Right? Because he's the one that made these things crooked. What he has bent or made crooked, who is going to make it straight? There was an old rustic preacher who said, learn to cooperate with the inevitable. Learn to cooperate with the inevitable. God has made everything beautiful in its time, including the things that we see as crooked and that we think need to be made straight. Earlier in Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 15, it said this, what is crooked cannot be straightened. And at that time we talked about, well, we need to understand that when it's God who's made it crooked, we can't straighten something he's made crooked unless he says, okay, now it's going to be straightened. I see an example of this in Isaiah chapter 14. Turn to Isaiah chapter 14 with me. 
Isaiah 14, beginning in verse 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have planted, so it will stand. To break Assyria in my land, and I will trample him on my mountains. Then his yoke will be removed from them, and his burden removed from their shoulder. This is the plan devised against the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out against all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? This is God's view on history, on the events that happen in this life. He stretches out hands against nations. It's him who has planned it. Who can frustrate his plans? He stretched out his hand. Who can take God's hand and turn it back? Surely not any of us. Surely not any of us. Finally, in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 14, he says this, In the day of prosperity, be happy. Prosperity and happy have the same root word. It's the same word that's been translated better and good throughout this passage. It seems like we could say, on the good days, be good. All right? on, the, on the good days, let it be good with you. Deuteronomy 26.11 says this, You and the Levite and the alien who is among you shall rejoice in all the good which the Lord your God has given you in your household. So in the day of prosperity, we do rejoice. But in the day of adversity, consider. The, the day of affliction, what we would consider bad or evil days, days when calamity strikes, In those days, consider. Think it through. God has made the one as well as the other. This word made can mean to set or to appoint. He's appointed it. As we learned earlier in Ecclesiastes 3, he's made everything appropriate in his time. And by the way, this includes both good times and bad times. Who brings prosperity? God does. Who brings adversity? God does. Why doesn't he just give us prosperity all the time? Well, one answer is that adversity teaches us some things, as we saw in our quote earlier about the crucible of trials, what we learn. In Deuteronomy 8.5, for example, it says this, Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. The person who is in prosperity today may find themselves in adversity tomorrow and vice versa, so we shouldn't get too comfortable. And he gives a reason, so that, purpose clause, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him, that man will not attain to one, and the word anything, one little speck, Acquire no thing. He's expressed similar sentiments before. Ecclesiastes 3.22. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? The answer is no one. 
In Ecclesiastes 6.12, another rhetorical question. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? Only God. This reaction to God's dispensing of um, prosperity and adversity is something that Job started out really good with in Job chapter 2, verse 10. He said to his wife, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And that's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is we should accept both from his hand. Paul, the apostle, learned to be content with much or with little. By the way, I don't want to get into this, but that's the context of I can do all things through Christ which strengthen me. It doesn't mean you're able to leap tall buildings in a bound. It means you're able to live with both little or much in contentment. That's the context of that verse. And so right around the time that, that we think we have it all figured out, that we can manage life on our own, God shows us that our algorithm is broken. Our logic is flawed. And brings us to realize our dependence on him for all things, including our future. Beware of the pat, easy answers to life. Because the Christian life always requires us to walk by faith and not by sight. It is God who decides our lot of adversity and our lot of prosperity. And he holds the future from us also. Adversity and prosperity are mingled together by him. And our finite understanding cannot discover anything about his future. Said another way, we don't know what's going to happen. But God does. And he has his reasons for why he decrees what he decrees. Warren Wearsby said this, God balances our lives by giving us enough blessings to keep us happy and enough burdens to keep us humble. We need both. That puts us in a place of dependence upon God because we don't know what tomorrow will bring. And that bucks against our pride because we like to know and we like to control. And by the way, even in our desire to know all the details of future events, there's an element in that of our desire to be in control. In fact, I would say those who have uh, gone out and predicted exactly when the, the Lord was going to return, they did that because they wanted to control it. You see the folly in that. Consider that a bird who is caught in a net, when it struggles, usually only gets entangled more than it was before. When we are in difficulties, we should be mindful not to struggle and buck against God, but to give ourselves wholly over to him. And I'll just be honest with you. I find myself at times saying to people, I would change the situation if I could. It's probably not the best thing for me to say. Because I might as well say, well, if I were God, I would do this differently. Since we can't change what God has done, we shouldn't wish to. Because that's where faith comes in. Faith in his wisdom. In his always doing things well. Man should consider God's activity because God is sovereign, decreeing and controlling everything under the sun. MacArthur said that. So whether it's adversity or prosperity that comes, we must consider the work of God and realize that our complaints about our lot in life are really against him. I'm going to read to you a lengthy quote.
quote by C.S. Lewis briefly as we finish up today. Listen to this quote by C.S. Lewis. We want not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day a good time was had by all. He says, I should very much like to live in a universe which is governed on such lines, but since it is abundantly clear that I don't, and since I have reason to believe nevertheless that God is love, I conclude that my conception of love needs correction. God sovereignly brings circumstances into our lives, and he does so for a specific purpose, which is known to him. He's always wise. He's always good. And he's always just. We may not see this in this lifetime. There will be a day when the harmony of God's works will show itself to be more beautiful than anything we could have ever imagined. Oh, what a day that will be when we see how God orchestrated all things to accomplish his plan. Our response will be, we'll fall on our face and just say, worthy, O Lord, are you. To you be the glory. as we close, just a few points of life application. Number one, respond rightly to adversity and prosperity. This word consider that Solomon used, it means testing something out to prove it. And as we consider the work of God, we, can, we can't afford to be sloppy with our thinking. We can't afford to be sloppy with our theology, what we know about God. There are temptations and pitfalls in how we respond to things in this world, whether it's prosperity or whether it's adversity. He mentioned some, the pitfall of pride, doubt and disillusionment, resentment, bitterness, and others. We must submit to God's sovereignty in bringing us good things and in bringing us things that we would call bad. So that when everything seems to be going our way, there's seasons like that sometimes, We rejoice and we praise him for it. But when things start to go south from the human perspective, nothing seems to work out as we planned. Consider that God has brought times of adversity for us for reasons which are beyond our comprehension but serve a divine purpose. We must avoid the temptation to respond wrongly. So respond rightly to both adversity and prosperity. Secondly, prioritize walking in God's wisdom. We shouldn't make decisions without asking for God's wisdom, seeking him out. We can't see the whole picture clearly without drawing from the wisdom of God. We know that the end of the matter is better than its beginning. It's prudent at times just to wait and see what God is doing. We don't always know what he's doing. All of this requires us to walk in wisdom. And it's a walk of faith, and it's wisdom that we get from the word of God. Thirdly, seek to walk in truth rather than a made-up dream world. Along similar lines, we should highly value truth. We should value highly those who would reprove and even rebuke us when we're walking in our own version of reality that doesn't align with the word of God. Are you open to having your thoughts and views challenged and corrected? Said another way, are you teachable? Are you teachable?
Rebuke is better than the songs of fools, but we must be open to the God-ordained accountability that is in our lives. By the way, that's part of what it means to be part of a church body. Because as Colossians said, Paul wrote to the church at Colossians, admonish one another. Admonish one another. We need people to help us not walk in our own made-up dream world and to walk according to truth. And finally, number four, acknowledge that the better life is only possible with Christ. Do you know him? Do you know him as your savior? If not, trust Jesus as your savior. He is the way to a better life. And that's why our theme is finding meaning in this, under the sun, in the sun, in Jesus. He is who it's all about. Let's make him clearly um, who it's about this year, if we have an opportunity to do so. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for your word and what it teaches us. There's so much packed into those 14 verses in Ecclesiastes. I trust and pray, Lord, that that what's been said here was your word. We don't need any more agendas of man. We don't need any more wisdom of this world. We need your word to be what teaches us and guides us. Pray that it would always be so, Lord, as long as um, our church exists, as long as um, we exist as a body, that we would put a high priority on truth. And I pray we would not just put a high priority on truth that's preached, but truth that's lived by us. We live out all that we've been given. I pray that each one of these folks here, Lord, and those who perhaps are listening in online and those who will hear this sermon in the days to come would find their hope and peace and rest in you alone and that they would be living a satisfied life, a better life because of the place that Jesus has put in their lives. We have the roadmap to a better life pray you would help us to live in submission to you, in worship of you, and waiting upon that day where either we'll pass from this earth, taking our last breath, or whether you come and snatch us out of this world. We look forward to the day when we'll see you face to face. Till then, help us to be faithful like you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.